please, follow, please find Psalm 19 with me. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. I'd like to begin this morning by speaking up for two maligned vocations. Uh, the first is that of the poet. So I'm in a, uh, I'm in a reading group, uh, a book club, and anytime anything like poetry appears or there is a, suge- a suggestion somewhere that we might read poetry in this, uh, there's a collective groan in the class. Why is that? Why don't people like poetry? Well, a common conception is poetry just involves sort of flowery language, and it obscures that which could be more plainly said in prose, and it's of little practical use. And to be fair, that does describe a lot of poetry, namely bad poetry. But in fact, I'm not sure if you've thought of it this way before, good poetry is the most efficient form of writing there is. Good poetry packs as much meaning as possible into as few of words as possible, And it asks more of the reader to unearth that meaning from the words. But if you're successful, that effort is always rewarded by a richer understanding. So he's spoken up for the poet. Let me also speak up for the vocation of the philosopher. So the common conception of philosophy is uh, there's some guys with beards carrying on a conversation uh, on a debate no one cares about, writing books no one will ever read. That part's true. And that is a description of a lot of bad philosophy. But at its best, philosophy isn't concerned with irrelevant, high-minded navel-gazing. It's really concerned with the most fundamental and important questions of life. Why are we here? What kind of world do we inhabit? What's the good life? What is morality, and how do we know it? And of all people, Christians should be sympathetic to both of these vocations, the poet and the philosopher. Number one, because a full third of our Bibles are in poetic verse. If you don't like poetry, you kind of have to take it up with God. And number two, the Bible is concerned with the most fundamental and important questions of life, the good questions of philosophy. In Psalm 19, the text I want us to look at this morning embodies both of these things. C.S. Lewis called Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And Psalm 19 concerns a very basic question of philosophy, which is, what can we know and how do we know it? This psalm says the primary and most insightful way we gain knowledge about the world, we gain knowledge about God, and we gain knowledge about ourselves is by listening to the God who has spoken. This psalm is a piece of poetry that answers one of the biggest questions of life. So let's study together. Number one, I want you to notice in Psalm 19 that God reveals himself in his world. The psalm opens with one of the grandest and most memorable lines in all of Scripture. Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. In Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth, this psalm portrays what he was doing as sort of God making portraits, which sing sing the praise of, of the artist, of their creator. 
And so he hung a bright canvas on which he painted the sun and the sky, and a dark canvas on which he painted the moon and the constellations of stars. And, and during the day, there is this giant spotlight in the sky that illuminates everything around us. And it draws our attention to the world we inhabit. It illuminates everything. And then during the night, that spotlight is taken away, allowing us to see there's actually more to this universe than just what's under the sun. And we're tantalized by starry hints of a vast universe. And in all of it, the psalmist says, there's a declaration going on. There's speech happening. The glory of God is being declared. In verses 5 and 6, the psalm focuses on what the sun does and how the sun illustrates God's creative power. Every single day begins with the sun, he says, rising from his tent, rising from his place of rest. He gets up and he dispels the darkness. He illuminates the world and he heats up everything it touches. And it does all of this with a special flare. The imagery is quite playful in verses 5 and 6. The sun emerges each day like a groom emerges from the chamber after his wedding. Joyful, excited, triumphant. And then it runs across the entire span of the sky like an athlete, flexing his muscles as he shows you what he can do. The heavens and the sun, they say no words, but they are not silent. There is something to learn about God from observing God's world. If a painting can tell us something about the painter, then the world can tell us something about God. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says something that complements this psalm very nicely. He says, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So it's really a perfect match with this psalm. So Psalm 19 says we can hear God's speechless voice in creation. In Romans 1, Paul says we can see God's invisible attributes in creation. We can hear a speechless voice and we can see invisible attributes. So let me just pause here for a minute and think about what this part of the psalm tells us. Let me make two quick applications of these verses. Number one, I think a, a very good application of these verses is, number one, Genuine science can draw us closer to God. Genuine science can draw us closer to God. This song gives us a basis for, for what's sometimes called uh, natural revelation or general revelation. If God is the creator of the natural world, then if we look at the natural world closely, if we look at it in a systematic way, we are bound to see God's fingerprints on it. If we see principles of design at work in the universe, then we're likely to see something about the designer of the universe. And, and so what that means practically is that the physical sciences all bear witness to the fact that we live in a well-ordered, well-designed cosmos. Whether that's chemistry or biology or anatomy and physiology or physics or astronomy, all of them point to this truth. The microscope and the telescope can show us how intricate the design how well-engineered the world is, how dialed in for life the universe is. Science tells us something about God. Now, you know as well as I do, modern science does not see itself this way, and many scientists do not see themselves as doing this sort of thing. The most famous example would be someone like Richard Dawkins, who sort of sneers at faith in the Bible. He, he argues that, that, that faith in the Bible and, and belief in God, these are just artifacts of our pre-scientific understanding. Before we knew how the world really worked, he would say, we had to rely on these silly stories about the gods to make sense of the world, but now we have this thing called science, and so we don't need those explanations. We have better ones. His narrative is, God is displaced by science. God is pitted against science. This is a false dilemma. 
And yet, I'm afraid that even at times we go along with the false dilemma. We accept his terms of debate. Okay, it's, it's God versus science, and we just take the opposite side. Okay, we'll take the God side, and you can have the science stuff. As an illustration, when, when I lived in uh, Bay City, one of our members in the church there was a science teacher. And, and on uh, Sunday, one day, on the bulletin board, there, there appeared a flyer for a gospel meeting or a lectureship. And the theme of the lectureship was the Bible versus science. The Bible versus science. And it was all that science teacher could do not to rip the thing off the board. Now, I suspect I probably wouldn't have had a big disagreement with anything said in that lectureship. I think it was clumsily titled. It probably should have been called The Bible versus Scientific Materialism or something like that. But I understood my brother's outrage because he knew what it was to hear God's voice and to see God's fingerprints in the world. He knew what it was to see God's hand at work in his, in his study positive example. Cavendish Laboratory is in the heart of Cambridge University. Uh, Some 30 Nobel Prizes have been awarded for work done there, mainly in the field of physics. And at the front entrance of the building, across across the top mantle, as you walk in, inscribed in the stone, are these words from Psalm 111. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Whoever's idea it was to put those words on top of that building had their head screwed on straight. Genuine science draws us closer to God. Second quick application here. God reveals, he doesn't impel. God reveals, he doesn't impel. So in verse 3, it says there's no speech, there's no noise, there's, there's no dissertation in the heavens on God's existence and attributes. We don't have that kind of voice, yet there is a voice that permeates the earth to the furthest corners. God is there for any and all to discover. And yet we have to admit the subtlety of this speechless revelation says God doesn't force himself on us. It says God is no propagandist. He's not heavy-handed about this revelation. He doesn't bludgeon us over the head with it. What he wants is for us to see his handiwork and to be moved to love and gratitude as we recognize our creator, Because to be forced to recognize him for who he is, that wouldn't be us coming to him out of genuine love. God is willing to risk us misinterpreting his natural revelation. It's possible for two people to take in the same data and come to radically different conclusions. It happens all the time. I think maybe the old joke about the difference between dogs and cats is an illustration of how two people can come to the same, with the same data can come to different conclusions. So the dog, you know, he sees the caretaker... Uh, feeding him, bathing him, cutting his nails, giving him a bed. And what does the dog conclude? They must be God. And the cat takes in the same information, the, the, the caretaker feeding him, bathing him, cutting his nails, giving him a bed, and the cat concludes, I must be God. Same data, different conclusions. To put it another way, the parable of the sower is a story about how two people can hear the same message and come to different conclusions. Same seed, different soils. And that's also true when it comes to beholding natural revelation. And so one person can behold the natural world and rightly see its power and its majesty, but then conclude that what this means is nature is God. This psalm could be read as a corrective to the Gentile pagans of David's day who saw, for example, the power and life provided by the sun and came to the conclusion the sun is God. 
And the son was saying, worship me, when really what the son was saying is, worship my creator. Now, we have a different way of misinterpreting today. Another person beholds the wonder of creation and attributes it to random, undesigned evolutionary processes. This person misinterprets the fact that God doesn't force himself on us, God doesn't propagandize us. They misinterpret that as God not existing. And, And this allows them, like the cat, to look at the power and the providence of God and somehow conclude, I'm God. But which is honestly more plausible? To believe that something came from nothing, and then that something randomly arranged itself into a cosmos, into a well-ordered whole, with perfectly dialed-in natural laws creating sentient thinking life on Earth, which is more likely to believe all of that happened, or to believe we have an orderly cosmos because someone ordered it. That natural laws are so perfectly dialed in because there is a natural law giver. That our world is fine-tuned for life because there is a fine-tuner. Psalm 19 says the cosmos is speaking to us, but only those with ears to hear will know what it's saying. Only the good soil will receive the seed of this revelation. We hear God's voice. I didn't even put the first point up. We hear God's voice in his world. Second point. God's voice, we can hear God's voice in his word, in his word. So in verse 7, we go from God's wordless revelation to God's revelation in his word. The the psalm drastically changes in verse 7. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they, those are the words of God, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, that is by God's words, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So the word he uses in verse 7 in Hebrew is Torah, the Torah of the Lord. And strictly speaking, this refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the foundational text for Israel. And and that would make sense that that word would be used because at this point in Israel's history and around David's day, this is still the bulk of, of their scriptures at this time. All the literary prophets, for example, the prophets that have books named after them, they're all writing after this time period. So the Bible is concentrated in those books. But Torah is also a biblical way uh, that it's described all of God's word and all of God's will. And for people living here and now, we should take this to refer to all of what God has said. So what you have in verses 7 through 9, what he does is he lists six aspects of Torah. Law, testimony, precept, commandment, fear, and judgment. Six aspects of Torah. And he matches each of them up with an adjective. And so, Torah is perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true. The point is not to take out a razor blade and parse out the differences. I'm not going to spend the next ten minutes uh, working out how a law is different from a rule and how a rule is different from a precept and how a precept is different from a commandment. I'll put you all to sleep. What he's saying is, every part of God's word be it a law, be it a testimony, be be it a precept, 
every part of God's law is in every sense good. It's good in the sense that it is perfect. It's good in the sense that it's sure and reliable. It's good in the sense that it's right and true, that it's correct. He's saying every jot and tittle of God's law exhausts the concept of goodness. And so in verse 7 he says that God's law restores vigor and vitality to our lives. It provides wisdom without which our lives would be full of the catastrophes fools are always inviting on themselves. It equips us not to make a mess of our lives. In verse 8 it says that the law lifts up our loves and our delights to that which is actually delightful. It directs us to, to love the things that are actually lovely. And it keeps us from all the lesser loves that end up disappointing us and embittering us. Then he says it helps us understand the world because we're in contact with the creator of the world. This is what God's law does. In verse 9, he says it gives us the permanent foundation for the well-led life, which is the fear of God. And it draws all of our lives together into a righteous whole. See, this psalm is trying to get us to see the the total picture of God's true, reliable, soul-renewing, life-preserving, joy-inducing, energy-giving word so that it will hit you like a ton of bricks and make you amen when the psalmist says in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. I think this verse even comes to life even more. When you see what he's doing in in verse 10 with God's word, literally is not desire it, but, but rather covet. Literally translated, more to be coveted are they than gold. Same word from the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. But this is the only kind of coveting you're allowed to do. Not coveting gold, but coveting God's word. Because when you do that, it will lead you away from danger, and it will lead you toward reward. Verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So can you appreciate the movement of this psalm? We start with the book of nature, which testifies to generalities about God. We can look at the natural world and we can say, yes, there does exist a powerful creator. But then we turn to the book of Scripture, which testifies to something even more particular about God, from general revelation in verse 1 to special revelation in verse 7. So let me pause here, and let me ask, what does this part of the psalm tell us? Let me make two more quick applications of these verses. Number one, creation and science only tell us so much. Creation and science, and by science I mean the study of that creation, Creation and science tell us something, but they only tell us so much. Creation tells us of God's might and power. We can observe the beauty, the orderliness, the engineering of creation. All of these tell us things about God. But by no means do they tell us everything about God. They can show there must be a maker, but who is that maker? How do we know there's not more than one? They speak of God and his good providence... You know, but it'd be hard to discern that God is triune from a sunrise. Trees don't tell us about the church. The ocean doesn't tell us Jesus died for us. And as we drill down even further and get more specific, creation and science have even less to reveal. You know, creation doesn't tell us why evil and death are present and who is at fault. Creation could even send a sort of mixed messages in its present fallen state. You know, power and might are also displayed in natural disasters, in tornadoes and hurricanes and in earthquakes. So are we to conclude from these that there exists a powerful deity, but that he's not a good deity? 
If God is good, why isn't creation always good? Even the greatest scientist who's sensitive to the reality of God and all of his work, even he can't shed much light on these questions using only his microscope and the scientific method. Creation only tells us so much. Science cannot answer every question that people ask. And we should not be satisfied with a few general ideas about the existence of a higher power. That general revelation, that's just the start of a journey that's concerned with far more than just the question, does God exist? Let's be honest, the question of does God exist is kind of a controversial question in our day, but the entire rest of human history before this, everyone agreed there existed God or gods. That's not the revolutionary idea here. If there's a God that created the heavens and the earth, the real question is, what's he like? Has he said more than just, hey, I exist? What a boring God that would be if that's all he had to say. Why did he make us? What did he make us for? And how then shall we live in light of the realization that we are creatures of this God? And so the first section of this psalm says creation and science tell us a lot. But then the next section says they don't tell us everything. And then there's the second application. I want you to see this in the psalm. Number two, we serve a God who wants to be known. We serve a God who wants to be known. You know, I think part of the value of studying other religions sometimes is that we can appreciate what is remarkable and unique about our own faith. Uh, It's very easy to take things for granted when we really only know about our faith. We don't know what's remarkable about it. So, for example, we take for granted that fundamental to religion is a revelation from God has been received, and we are to take that holy book, that revelation, and we should read it diligently and try to obey it. We take it for granted. To us, that's simply what religion is. There's this holy book, and we read it, and now we know the will of God, and then we go do it. That's what religion is to us. But you've got to understand, this is a revolutionary idea. The pagans had no expectation that the gods were interested in revealing themselves in truthful and helpful ways. If you read the the old stories about the Greek pantheons or the Norse pantheons, you'll find stories full of gods who are always in competition with one another. They're often playing coy about their true intentions. And if you did get a visit from one of the gods in the myths, the gods might well be lying to you to manipulate you. Reliable revelation of the will of the gods was not an expectation that the ancient pagans had. And then here comes Psalm 19. Telling us not just that there exists a deity. That's not the stunning revelation of this psalm to the ancient world. They knew that. They they knew there, there existed a deity. Psalm 19 comes and tells us that this deity has spoken. And he has revealed himself. He has revealed his heart. He has revealed his will. He has given us a way to live. And he has even invited us into covenant with him. So what does it say about this God that he reveals his will and reveals himself to the creatures that he made. What does it reveal about this God that he gives sure testimonies to make us wise? It says he cares about us. It says he wants to be in relationship with us where we actually know him. Because when we reveal ourselves, when we speak and listen, we're inviting people into relationships. So for example, I've used this illustration before, you know, if every time I showed up to church, I just go sit in a corner and I never answer any question asked of me, and I never share any information about myself, and I show no interest in you or anything like that, if that's how I conduct myself, what does that say about me? 
says, I'm not too interested in relationship. But when I speak with people, when we share ourselves with them, we are inviting them into relationship. That's what we're doing. We're expressing a desire to know them and inviting them to be known by them. And Psalm 19 is saying, our God is like that. He doesn't sit in the corner. He speaks. He reveals who he is. He instructs. He invites us into relationship. There's an openness and an honesty and a transparency with God. And so for the psalmist, the only proper response is to value the words of this God more highly than he values the finest gold. And to savor them more than he does the sweetest honey. And then to abide by them as much as he possibly can. The revolutionary part of this psalm is not, hey, there exists a God. Every person living before about 100 years ago would have said, well, duh. The the revolution of this psalm is, this God has spoken. He has spoken to us because he cares about us. Which brings us to the third point in the ending of this psalm which tells us that all this revelation we're, we're receiving, all of it demands a response. I think the psalm ends in a, in a very unexpected way. This is verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Can we just pause and and just remark how odd this is? This is an odd turn in the psalm. Why has this suddenly turned into a prayer of personal confession? What in the world does this have to do with what we just studied? You know, when you're preaching an evidence of sermon, this is not how you end it, by confessing your sins and asking God to reveal to you where it is you have sinned. But I would argue there have been hints of this already. There's been hints that he's headed here. So do you remember in verse 6? He noticed that nothing is hidden from the light and heat of the sun. It's an illustration of God's, of God's pervasive revelation, and there's nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. And maybe he's thinking as he writes those words in verse 6, if nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun, maybe that even includes my own heart. Nothing is hidden. In verse 8, and then in verse 11, he says things like God's word illuminates him, God's word warns him. So maybe he's thinking, might I need some illumination? Might I need some warning about the state of my own heart? God's revelation in the world and in his word suddenly make the psalmist very aware of his own unworthiness before God. What he does in 12 and 13 is he summarizes the whole spectrum of sin. Verse 13, he mentions the sin we commit most brazenly and willfully and high-handedly, where we say, God, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want, I know it's wrong, I just don't care. There's that kind of sin. And in verse 12, he mentions the kind of sin that we commit totally unknowingly. We don't even know that's what we're doing. And he says, God, your son and your word expose every bit of your world, and that includes the depths of my own heart. Think of it another way. The psalmist has looked at God's amazing world, And you know what God's world does? You know what the sun does? It does exactly what it was created to do. Day after day, it does exactly what God made it to do. It rises and it sets in perfect rhythm day after day. And in the process, it bears witness to the God who made it do those things. And then we've got God's word in the next section, which is perfect. And it's true. And it bears beautiful witness in an even more personal way to God. And so we've got everything working working like a charm, working like clockwork in God's world. 
And then in verse 12, he looks at his own life and his own heart, and he sees how woefully this part of creation does what it was created to do. Maybe he's thinking something like this. You know, the son is much better at being a son than I am at being a human. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. So the question is, what what does it mean if my soul isn't revived? Maybe it's because I haven't let it revive me. That's the realization he's coming to in verses 12 and 13. And so realizing all of this, the psalm ends in verse 14 with a request. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The heavens are praising the Lord in verse 1. The word of God is praising him and testifying to him in verse 7. And in verse 14 he says, I want to join that praise. So he asks for forgiveness for his sins. He asks to be protected from temptation. And he asks to be counted worthy enough to praise and speak as faithfully as the sky and as the sun. I'm very fascinated by these last three verses. What they tell us is, the question they answer is, what are we supposed to do with all this information we're gaining? We're being sensitive to God's, God's voice in the world. We're being sensitive to God's voice in his word. And we're hearing all these things and we're learning all these things. What are we supposed to do with all this information? Are we supposed to pat ourselves on the back because we've heard God's voice so well? You know, do we hear God's voice just so we can be given ammo, so that we can own our unbelieving acquaintances and we can rub people's nose in it because they haven't heard God's voice as well as I have? Is that what this is about? You know, are we supposed to pray a new version of the, of the self-righteous prayer of the Pharisee? Lord, I thank you I'm not like other men, atheists, agnostics, or even like these theological liberals over here. No, this psalm says. A good scientist will allow the world to correct his, pre- his erroneous presuppositions. That's what a good scientist will do. And in the same way, a good disciple will allow the word of God to correct their erroneous presuppositions. They will allow the word of God to point out their sinful habits, to point out their most deeply ingrained beliefs and practices. Psalm 19 ends by saying the proper reaction to hearing God's word is not to take pride in ourselves. It's not to disdain those who haven't heard God's voice as well as I have. The proper reaction to hearing God's voice is humble self-examination and repentance. If God's word doesn't humble you, then you haven't really heard him yet. And so using the tools of the poet, Psalm 19 answers the question of the philosopher. And it says that the primary and most insightful way we gain knowledge about the world, we gain knowledge about God, we gain knowledge about ourselves, is by listening to the God who has spoken. God's voice is ringing out in the cosmos, and it's there in the pages of Scripture. God's voice is resonating everywhere, and the question is, is it resonating in me? If God's words are so pervasive and so good, why isn't my heart so good? Have I heard it well enough? All of this speech of the heavens and the word is for a purpose. The purpose is to be heard and internalized by those made in God's image. For our hearts to be awakened to their own disorderliness and their sin. And to finally cause us to cry out to God for forgiveness and guidance. And so verse 14 ought to be the prayer of everyone who hears God's voice. Let the words of my mouth. We've heard God's words. Now we're going to think about our words. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock my Redeemer.
If there's someone here that needs to come and make this sort of confession that the psalmist is doing in the last few verses, you've heard God's voice well, if that's your response to it. If anyone needs to come and repent and to own their sin, if there's anyone that needs to come and to submit themselves to this Lord in the first place in the waters of baptism, whatever your spiritual need, come forward now and we stand and sing. Sing with the ransom the songs of the blessed, the life everlasting if ye would obtain, ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. Ye must be born again. I verily, verily say unto thee, ye must be born.